Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chatterjee, and we're trying a first this week for Plugged In, a repeat guest. If you recall, earlier this fall, we had Chris John, the CEO of the American Chemistry Council, join us. Great interview built on an earlier podcast we did with the Association of American Railroads. And we've got Chris back today because he has been at the epicenter of what has been the biggest story, not just in energy policy, quite frankly, but in all of the economic policy discussion here in the United States of America. Last week, we thought we were on the precipice of a rail strike. It was narrowly avoided when Congress took action and ultimately the president signed a resolution into law avoiding what would have been an economic catastrophe. Chris, jump right in. Tell our listeners exactly how did we get to where we got and what happens from here. So, Neil, first of all, thank you. It's an honor to be back. I appreciate the invitation. So how we got here, we're actually in the third year of rail negotiations, believe it or not. And they've been trying to get a deal for that time, haven't been able to do so. We had federal mediation, and then we had a presidential emergency board appointed by President Biden make recommendations. Then the labor leaders and the railroads reached an agreement. And in September, we had a celebration. We had a rose garden ceremony. President Biden took a victory lap. It was all good. And then it wasn't. What happened was four of the railroad labor employee unions did not approve the contract. And so that brought us back to where we were before on the, as you said, a precipice of a strike, looking at December 9th as a a drop dead date. The challenge was for our members in the chemical industry, they stopped shipping those products a week ahead of time. So we moved 33,000 carloads a week at a value of about $3 billion. And chemical shipments are crucial for uh, essential products like health, safety, water treatment in particular. And so as we run up against that deadline, we have the potential for thousands of drinking water facilities across the country to not have the chemicals they need to keep us all safe. And so we're very happy that Congress acted on a bipartisan basis. Who said bipartisanship was dead? We got big bipartisan majorities to avert a rail strike. And so hopefully things will go back to normal, but normal's got to get better. So I'll maybe stop there because there's a lot of things I could dive more into there. Well, let me ask you real quick at the onset who the players were. You know, so in the past, I know, and we've discussed at length that shippers and railroads have had some tension over issues like STB reform and pricing and antitrust. In this instance, though, were the railroads and shippers kind of aligned and was it a union issue? Break down for our listeners who was where on these negotiations. So you've got it exactly right. Shippers and railroads were aligned in terms of, look, the economy could not possibly have survived a strike. So according to our data, you had a one month long strike, you would lose nearly a million American jobs, see a 4% increase in inflation, and you would drain $160 billion out of the economy. We just literally could not do that, which is why Congress acted. And so it's, it's really a disconnect between the union leadership and union members that kind of caused this breakdown where he had the work 
workers did not ratify what their leaders had agreed to. And so that's got us in that situation where it required congressional intervention. And we got big, as I said, big bipartisan majorities, 290 votes in the House and uh, 80 votes in the Senate to take that action. Why did Congress have to get involved? I guess, why couldn't this have been solved administratively? Some of the blowback that I heard from my former colleagues in the legislative branch was they were frustrated that this was coming to Congress. Quite frankly, they were a little bit frustrated with the unions, but as well as industry, that they were bringing this to Congress. There were some that felt that the celebration and agreement that was struck this fall was merely to get through the election and that this was punted until after the election. Is there any kind of truth to the the frustrations that they were venting? Yeah, we we heard those frustrations too. And why does Congress need to act? Why are we fixing somebody else's political problem? You know, should uh, Congress really be the court of last resort, so to speak, in this situation? Neil, what is a little bit different here, and I know it's it's super in the weeds, but there's actually a provision in the Railway Labor Act that specifically allows Congress to intervene in these types of situations. And it's actually, believe it or not, has been invoked 18 times in the past. So this was not a precedent-setting action. This is something that's been done in the past, and there is a role for Congress to play if the parties cannot reach agreement. And so while I think everybody involved would have preferred to see the unions and the railroads figure something out collectively, they weren't able to do that And so Congress needed to intervene. So that's why, again, we got big bipartisan majorities supporting the action, but nobody was happy about having to do it. Well, I saw Senator Bernie Sanders was very vocal in support of the unions and his frustration with how things were shaking out. But it was interesting to me. Never thought I'd see the day when there were Republicans on the floor of the United States Senate taking the union position and fighting on behalf of the unions. What was the breakdown of those 80 votes in the Senate and 290 some odd in the House? Was it clean along only sort of pro-union Democrat votes against or was it kind of a hodgepodge? it all over the place. The quote that made me laugh the most is when Ted Cruz voted with Bernie Sanders for his amendment for additional sick leave. Apparently, Senator Sanders said to Senator Cruz, I always knew you were a socialist. And so there were some unholy alliances, so to speak, and I think some strange bedfellows that made us swamp creatures laugh a little bit. So in the Senate, you had Senator Sanders had an amendment, uh, got 52 votes. He, He lost Joe Manchin and picked up seven Republicans, though, Senator Cruz, Senator Rubio among them and casting their votes, as they said, to be pro-worker. So there were definitely crossed some partisan lines, but also some kind of ideological lines that, you know, maybe we haven't seen on too many issues before. And the same was true in the House as well. There was a majority for some additional sick leave, but not enough to get that across the finish line. As you well know, as a former Senate staffer, You need uh, 60 votes in the Senate, and they did not come close to doing that. So some really interesting political undercurrents there. But at the end of the day, Neil, not enough to actually make it impactful. It's curious, though, and it's something Brianne and I have been discussing amongst ourselves and guests on the podcast, the shifting trends within the Republican caucus right now. The party in the post-Trump era seems to be becoming more populist, more working class. And I think this vote was potentially indicative of it. If you could walk it through for our listeners, because I got to tell you, as someone who doesn't follow this stuff closely every day, when I was hearing some of the back and forth about sick leave, quite frankly, I was a little bit sympathetic to the concerns that the unions were raising. For our listeners, what am I missing? What were the policy nuances of that debate? 
Yeah. So it's a really good question. And I think the railroads, I don't want to speak for them and they certainly wouldn't, they certainly wouldn't want me speaking for them either. I would submit that I think they did a terrible job in terms of highlighting how they take care of their employees. These folks are well paid. They did get a 24% increase in this negotiation. At the same time, the, the question was really about sick leave and the ability to have enough to take care of either yourself or your family. And that's what they were really going for. And we're not able to reach agreement on. And that's where Senator Sanders and others were trying to intervene on their behalf. I would submit to you that the, the railroads need to do a better job of positioning themselves and educating uh, legislators about what they do provide for their members. And I'll leave it to them to do that. What I'll say, though, Neil, on that is, again, we're three years into a five-year deal. They're going to have to negotiate a new deal starting pretty soon because that, that deal expires in two years. And so I've got to think that this is the number one issue that the railroads and the union folks need to get on the same page going forward. So I just want to stress again and clarify for our listeners, and we do have a lot of railroad folks and supporters who listen to the Plugged In podcast. What you're saying is, in your view, because you guys in the railroads were aligned on this against the, the railroad unions, what you're saying is, in your view, the railroads do do a pretty good job of taking care of their employees. And it's simply an issue of they need to highlight that better in their communications and negotiations with the unions and that it's a branding issue. But in fact, the railroads do take pretty good care of their workers. So what I would say, Neil, is that the union workers are well compensated, but I'm not an expert on rail labor. And I would not submit to you that necessarily they're doing all the things that they could do. I, I would say that I am not qualified to go into depth on that and suggest that our folks both in the unions and the railroads would be better served to opine on that one. Now, President Joe Biden has long been known as, you know, kind of union Joe, a very pro-union guy. It was a big part of his appeal, both in his Senate runs, when he ran for vice president, and obviously in his run for president, that he was from Pennsylvania, working class roots, union roots. Were you surprised that the president would weigh in as heavily as he did here and kind of back some of the unions down in order to get the congressional support to get this over the line? Or is it that as we're coming up on the holiday season, majorly critical time for the economy, that it was just an untenable position that he had to side against the unions because it was just too important that this get done? Really good question. And what I would say to that is I have personally in our organization has been critical of the Biden administration on a number of policy issues. You have to give him credit here, though. The economic damage would have been catastrophic from a rail strike. And so President Biden showed leadership and he stepped up and said, hey, we have to do this. I may not want to do it, but I've got to say to my union folks whom I support, hey, look, this is something we need to get done and we need to fix this elsewhere. So we met with the White House the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, talked to them again right the day after Thanksgiving and emphasized to them that the impacts are significant and they're going to be felt before a strike and we need to act now. And so I give the administration a lot of credit for calling on Congress to act well in advance of when we would be feeling the impact. So all credit to the Biden administration there. Now we have a resolution crisis averted for the time being, but is everything fixed? Like, are we out of the woods here? You mentioned we still got to negotiate three years into a five-year deal. Could we be faced with this situation again? A replay of 
we felt good about it in the fall and then face it again now. Can we exhale or are there still unresolved issues here? I would say that you can exhale and take a deep breath and be ready for this to come around again, uh, maybe in a couple of years. So hopefully, you know, they can get negotiations going and uh, let things cool off a little bit and then get back to the negotiating table well ahead of when this deal expires in two years. I would just say for our members though, and all shippers, the underlying structural challenges that we have with rail service remain. The top four companies in the space have 90% of the traffic, three quarters of my members, uh, their facilities are captive shippers and it costs too much because it is not competitive. So that exists in the rail space. We got something passed called the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. The Federal Maritime Commission needs to get that implemented. We have a very similar situation in ocean shipping. And uh, we'd love for Congress to increase the gross vehicle weight for trucking and so allow um, heavier trucks on the road to move more freight. We don't have enough trucks or truck drivers to move our products. So, Neil, we still have structural issues that need to be addressed that are impacting the supply chain, that are driving inflation up, that need to be fixed for the long term. And that's where our focus is going to be going forward. So for our listeners, what you're saying is, so in the event of this strike, had occurred, had it actually occurred, it would have been an economic catastrophe because there simply aren't alternative modes of transportation that your members and other shippers could have utilized to get through the economic trauma that would have been caused by the strike. And that unless we make some big time structural changes going forward, if we find ourselves in this situation again with a standoff with the unions, we still will be in this situation. We won't have alternative modes of transportation to get us out of it. Yeah, we do not have the structural capacity to address that. We are short trucks. We are short truck drivers. Just to give you a sense of this, Neil, so a rail tank car, that's the equivalent capacity of anywhere between four and six trucks. We have nowhere near close the capacity to address that. In addition, in some of these hazardous materials that are shipped, the safest form of that transportation is rail. And so there are issues where if we have to move more to truck, we put more vehicles on the road, or just by its very nature, that's challenging as well. That's why it's so important we get freight rail fixed for the long term, better service, more competitive rates, and that's better for all Americans. Now, again, we discussed on our last podcast some of the, the challenges you guys are facing there, but at least on these union issues on a going forward basis, you all on the railroads remain on the same page. Our interests are aligned on this issue. That's correct. Fascinating stuff. Well, it's really interesting how quickly this came together and how significant it could have been. It's one of these issues that sort of flew under the radar. And there were so many other things that we were focusing on here in the Plugged In podcast, in policy circles, in mainstream media, in alternative media, on social media. And then all of a sudden, this overwhelmed everything. This was the story in the planet in the past week. And it really caught a lot of people off guard. And so really appreciate you, Chris, coming on the Plugged In Podcast and kind of informing our listeners about these complex issues. As you look ahead to the next Congress, touching on some of the issues that where you guys have struggled against the railroads, as we talked about captive shipper issues and competitiveness issues, STB issues, you know, what do you see on the horizon for 2023 divided government? How is that going to impact your strategy as you approach the next couple of years, at least at a federal legislative level? The divided government will have a significant impact there. And we think there's an opportunity for the Surface Transportation Board, the STB to act. And they're looking at a number of potential rulemakings right now. And we expect they will act in the next few months, next six months to a year on those. And things like reciprocal switching, which 
we can really nerd out on, Neil, but I'll just kind of headline it for you is that would create more opportunities for competition between railroads to create better service and better rates for all shippers and ultimately benefiting all Americans. So there's a few policies we could see that would move through the regulatory pipeline that we think would be positive. And then kind of right in your sweet spot, Neil, is we're really excited about the potential for both energy legislation, energy reform, as well as permitting reform. Now, I'm I'm a little skeptical we can get anything done in the lame duck here, but we know House Republicans are looking to move something early in 2023. And so that's a huge priority for us as well. Well, Chris, thank you again for joining us on the Plugged In podcast and for coming on in the aftermath of such a critically important issue. Really appreciate your being our first time comeback guest. Now, I must say you came on the last time in response to an episode we did with some folks from the railroad industry. I'm going to offer them the opportunity to come on and present their side of it. This was really great. Thank you, Chris, for joining us on the Plugged In Podcast. Thank you, Neil. I appreciate it. Great to be with you. Thanks so much again for listening to Season 3 of the Plugged In Podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time. You can keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and by subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter, written by me, Brianne Depish, and my co-author, Jeremy Beeman. Beeman.